Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. Hello again and welcome to the epic narrative. <clears throat> we are rolling through Genesis. We are in Genesis 15. 15. We've done 20 something, 28 episodes. Yeah, this is good. We're doing good. Hey, appreciate you guys hanging out, being here every single week. Um, first verse of chapter 15. After this. Dun, dun, dun. After what? Well, after chapter 14, of course. And what was going on in chapter 14? That was the whole last week's episode, right? About um, Melchizedek and the king of Sodom giving uh, some sort of honor and tithing exchange between Abram after he's chased down the conglomerate of kings that were sent uh, from Nimrod, yada, yada, yada. You don't need to rehash that, but after this, that's all we know, right? We actually don't know how much time it was. Once again, I I, I, uh, I love pointing out this part. I love pointing out these phrases and words that are in Scripture that don't give us you know, they don't give us specifics. They just give us the idea that there was a, t a, a period of time that passed between the two chapters. This was everyday life. This was Abram uh, living on the plain uh, up north. This was Lot reestablishing himself down by Sodom. I have no doubt <clears throat> that because of what happened here and the fact that Abram, Abram's, uh, Abram, Lot's uncle, uh, rescued all the possessions of of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and and you know uh, he was offered all the possessions not the people but all the possessions and Abram refused it because he was like I'm not going to have any sort of history going on where it says it's you know it's the king of Sodom made me wealthy but I'm sure <clears throat> Lot cashed in he cashed in if nothing else because he had he had a connection to Abram, that if, if something happened a lot, then Abram would come to his rescue. And Abram was clearly incredibly wealthy and had a well-trained uh, military slash security uh, force. He also had good connections amongst one, uh, several of the larger tribes and cities up north. So there was there was a benefit to the king of Sodom and Gomorrah to, to maintain a good connection and to bless uh, Lot with stuff. And would and more than just stuff, they would have blessed Lot with uh, influence. That's what I want to say. Political influence, probably some real estate, uh, as far as like in the cities, places where he could bring his family to be protected. There was a lot of uh, selfishness that was a part of the government of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were, uh, yeah, they were selfish people, generally speaking. And we can get into that. I, I don't know. Is it the next chapter that? Uh... No, it's not. It's several chapters. Sorry, I just did a quick look. It's several chapters away when we get into Sodom and Gomorrah, but we'll go into that later. But I, I just think that uh, Lot would have naturally started to cash in on his uncle's uh, success and on the on the uh, opportunity of being the wealthiest guy around and the most favored guy around, and the one with the connection to, not only to Abram up north and these other two large uh, establishments up north, but also to Melchizedek, 
which gave them a connection to to God, you know, a spiritual connection to a mysterious uh, Yahweh that uh, was probably out of the realm of of interest for for the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah because they were they were uh, shall we say taking a different track when it comes to religion. They they intertwined religion and politics so that they could continue to amass uh, wealth and um, and power for themselves. So there was a there probably wasn't a super great interest in following Yahweh, but there was enough of an interest to say, hey, we probably should have that God on our side. And Lot gave them that connection. All right, so after this, all of this is going on. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. So after the recapture of Lot and the plunder for Sodom and all of that, God promises two things uh, to Abram. He says, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm your great reward. Basically, he, sa he says, you know what, Abram? Don't be unsettled. Because uh, I'm guessing Abram was feeling unsettled. He's looking around going, I don't, I don't have any walled city. I don't own any land. Uh, clearly I went, picked a fight with, <laughs> with a, picked a fight and won a battle against an alliance of four kings, one of whom was basically, uh, underwriting the whole thing, whose name is Nimrod, who you know God is not one to take defeat really well. And he didn't take the fact that my father walked away from his role as high priest and maker of all idols, and the fact that I continued to walk away and preach this, you know, preach you to to the people of of Assyria. Like I'm, I'm not so sure. Like this might not come back to bite me. This whole, you know, family family matters and relationship con uh, connections matter, and this line. You know, there was a reason why Lot was taken captive. There was a reason why all of his stuff was taken captive. And, uh, you know, all of the all the other people that were taken, yes, but there's a reason why it's mentioned that Lot was taken. And it was he was taken because everyone knew. He's connected to Abram. Abram's connected to Terra, Terran, Terran, whatever his father's name was. And that hurt uh, Nimrod. That was a that was an ego blow to Nimrod. That was a Abram was scary. Abram uh, Abram according to legend walked through a fiery pit and came out unharmed. Like that's uh that guy I'd like to get back at that guy. If we take Lot, he may come after us and then we'll have an opportunity to maybe kill him. And then of course they didn't and they were routed. So I I get that feeling of unsettledness that Abram was feeling at this point. He had a really good life going. He had really no reason to have fear, and now he does. Not just for, not just from Nimrod, but any one of those kings from the alliance could clearly come just after him. He's sitting out alone, in essence, alone, unprotected, on a on a huge, uh, lush valley slash plain, there in the in the in the land of Canaan. Uh, that's uh, that's a you're, you're gonna feel pretty exposed laying out there, and so God comes in, right? This is what God does. He takes what we're feeling, 
He understands what we're feeling. And he comes in and he says, let me speak to that. Let me speak to what you're what you're going through right now. Let me let me bring peace to your mind and to your and to your emotions. Peace is such a major part of heaven. Like it literally is is uh, <clears throat> what what do they say? Love, joy, and peace are are they are the atmosphere of heaven. It's everything that God breathes in are those things, and it's everything that He speaks out comes from that breath of love, joy, and peace. And so when you're unsettled, it peace is something the Lord really wants to speak out to you. He wants you to feel this. And so you do. So, so the Lord shows up. There's no indication that Abram sought the Lord on this. God just shows up. He's speaking as a friend. He's speaking to his friend. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. I'm your great reward. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to provide for you. That's huge, right? I think that's huge. I think it's such a great reminder to us when we are feeling exposed and unprotected, when we're feeling lost, when we're feeling, uh, you know, we've made a decision, we step out into that decision, and when we're done making the, the the decision and we sit back with the ramifications of it, we start to think, what what did I just do? I what did I just do? I literally could lose everything now. I could end up, you know, in Abram's case, he's like, I could end up dead. I I, I could I could lose all my possessions. Trust me, there are many people that make these kind of decisions. You make a decision to leave a really good job and step out into the unknown. You step out into the unknown and you're looking around going, wait, what, what, what did I just do? What did I just do? Holy smokes. Like I, could I really not put up with it anymore? Could I really not have just swallowed my pride or could I have just... Uh, you know, uh, I don't know, been satisfied with the norm, been satisfied with enough. Why did I, why did I go for more? Abram had to be asking himself, why did I go after Lot? Why did I go after that army? I could have been, could, you know, could I have worked out something else? Could I have just, could I have just offered a bribe and just brought Lot back and, and basically, let the kings take all the plunder. Like I only wanted my my nephew back because his father died trying to prove his loyalty to me and to Yahweh. Like there's a, like I stepped into this, but maybe I overstepped into this. Yes, there were things I would like to have changed. Maybe, I don't know. Like there's lots of people make these kind of decisions. Lots of people step out into the unknown and it's exciting to think about. And I'm sure Abram was, was fired up like, yeah, they took who? Oh, yeah, I'm going after this. Come on, put the army together. Hey, let's get my friends. They're going to back us up. I know, I'm sure we know which way they're headed. They're, they're weighted down with all kinds of, of plunder. And when they showed up and they got around, you know, the, the recon had told them where they were at. He's like, okay, I got a great plan. Let's do this. Boom. 
these guys are set to running and and you know yelling and and leaving all the plunder behind because they couldn't carry it and run at the same time and Abram gathers it all up and everything feels great. He ends up back it's you know in the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody's happy to see him. Melchizedek shows up out of nowhere. And all of that is going on and now Abram after all of that he's sitting back looking around going, "Wait, I this is bad. This this could have been a really bad decision." What was I thinking? And the Lord's stepping in here, basically, I, I would interpret this to mean uninvited in that Abram wasn't like at the altar uh, worshiping the Lord. He wasn't at the, you know, he didn't, he didn't do anything. God steps in and says, hey, Abram, don't be afraid. Don't live in fear. I'm your protection. I'm your provision. And Abram says, uh, all right, well, sovereign Lord. <laughs> all right, so you know everything that can possibly go on, right? You understand all the possibilities of every choice anyone can make. I get that. You are Lord. All right, but what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. Abram says, you, you've given me no children, verse 3. So a servant in my household is going to be my heir. Now, Abram, Abram's probably, because of the decision he made, and he's sitting out there in the open plain thinking, I could, I could be dead tomorrow, is thinking, who gets all this? Even if they didn't come for all the plunder, Let's say they just came from me. Let's say an assassin was sent to me. Let's say I'm I'm out with the shepherds and something tragic happens to me. Like he's he's thoroughly in a position where he's he's unsettled and he's thinking about his life. He's thinking about what have I what have I got what have I got to give and who have I got to give it to? I know I had all these promises from God, but but I picked a fight with a pretty big enemy right now. So it's just got him considering uh, his life. And big decisions, you know, will do that for you. And so the Lord comes to him and he says, hey, you know, don't be afraid, my friend. I, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. And so Abram is speaking to his friend. Uh, hey, so yeah, this whole, uh, you know, pos uh, possession thing, this whole provision thing. I'm kind of missing a key element here, Lord. Your protection is awesome. And I'm glad you've reminded me of that because I need to know that I'm not going to be wiped out sitting out here in this open plain. But uh, I don't have an heir. You remember that? Like there's, a, there's an element of the promises that you gave me. You promised me great provision. And I'm looking around, dude, I'm rich. I'm rich and I have uh, influence and I have authority that people, you know, people come to me for wisdom. I have a, a theology school where I'm teaching people about you and I'm, I'm releasing this whole idea of Yahweh, a one God, the creator God, the Lord God of heaven and earth. I'm teaching all of that. 
I was blessed by Melchizedek, very encouraged by him. Thank you very much. But you and I both know right now Eliezer gets everything. He's a great guy, but he's just a servant. He's not my son. Like you, you promised me heirs. You promised me heirs. I don't even have one. I don't have one. So God comes, like, first of all, let's remember, uh, God is not, like, intimidated by our questions. When we look around and say, hey, you know, I stepped out, I did I did something pretty major here, and I'm looking around thinking, I'm missing a key element of what I believed you were going to provide. All right? I'm just saying, let's talk about this. And God's God is totally good with this. And we see that, we well... We see that in the Psalms, especially, you know, last, last year we did, you know, David, and I reminded everybody, like, I did not even attempt to correlate the Psalms with the storyline of David, or we would have spent three years doing it. Like, it's it's awesome. It's a great study, and I encourage you to do your research on that. But here, you know, there's a legitimate question coming from Abram to God, and God says, God's response is, verse 4, uh, this man... The servant will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you could count them, that's how many your offspring would be. It's, I know what is missing. That's what I like. <laughs> I like it. I like that the that God says, yeah, fair question. I'll tell you what. Just to make sure you know that I haven't forgotten, I want you to go outside and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna look up at the stars. Now, verse six is a semi-famous verse because people look at this whenever they're looking at salvation uh, in the in the Old Testament, and this is this is the verse that a lot of people go to. Verse six: Abram believed the Lord, and he credited credited it. Sorry, I know I slur words really, I know. You guys are awesome to keep listening to me because I know that I I rattle these things off, entire sentences like they're one word. And he credited it to him as righteousness. So whatever this belief is, whatever just happened, this is, this is uh, one of those moments with God. He goes outside. He's having a good conversation with the Lord. And the Lord, I, you know, it's just, it's just precious. When you're in the presence of God, you're so filled with hope and love and peace. And I think, I think that's exactly what's going on with Abram. He asks a fair question. Who's this all going to go to if I don't have a child? And the Lord's like, you are going to have a child. It is going to be your flesh and blood. It's not going to be some surrogate. It's not going to go to your servant who will take care of it for you and and uh what what do they call it when uh oh come on i'm thinking of lord of the rings uh the 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 king of the king of gondor but he wasn't the king what, what was he called the steward that's what it was he's going to you know it's not going to go to a steward who's just going to oversee it and make sure it runs well it's going to go to a little literal heir and he takes him outside and he shows him the sky. And I just think he was just like, boom, like Holy Spirit's just like bang all over him. And he's like, wow, 
This is amazing. Now, clearly, Abram has believed God before, right? He believed God when, when he uh, started for out of Assyria into the Ur of the Chaldees, when he, you know, when he's traveling with his father, and he believed God when after his father died, he was like, "Let's continue the journey and go to Cana, Cana as or Canaan as we had discussed before." And he took that whole journey over there, and then when he found the land, and then when he but, you know, when he, when he, well, not so much when he went down to Egypt, but when he got back and he and Lot split and the Lord's like, walk the land. I'm going to show you all the land that you're going to possess. And, and so clearly he's believed the Lord before. Clearly he has, he has stepped into the promises of God before. Clearly he's had constant communication or at least consistent communication with the Lord. Why this verse? Like, where does this come from? What just happened that, that when he stepped out in, uh, to, to into the night sky and he and he looked at the stars and he's having this conversation with God and it says boom like he believed him there's something that shifted in the life of Abram in that verse and it makes it clear that at that point or from that point or maybe all along I don't know Abram was considered quote saved. Now, trust me, Abram's got a long life going on here. He's he's got plenty of opportunity here where he's gonna he's gonna not trust God. He's gonna trust God. He's gonna have conversations with God. He's gonna like there's lots of stuff coming. But in all of that, in all of that, the Lord was like, I just I just want you to know he Abram believed me. He believed me, and I consider him a righteous man. And then the Lord continued to talk to him. He said, I am the Lord. You're right. I'm sovereign. I know all the possibilities that could go on. And I brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. Now, you could say, well, you know, uh, did Abram have a choice? Absolutely. What God's saying here is, I gave you this option. You chose. You chose to go on this journey. I'm still with you. Now, I'm guessing this, this conversation goes on for a long period of time. This conversation continued, all, you know, I think kind of all through the night. They, they walked, they talked, they interacted. And I find it fascinating that after verse 7 where he says, in, uh, you know, this land, I, I, to give you this land, to take possession of it, Abram says to, to God, he says, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? In other words, I'm, <laughs> uh, okay, how, how to explain this? If, if this was a military mindset that God had, Abram would not have needed to ask this question. He would have known that God was going to provide for him an army big enough to take over the land. That's that's my kind of bottom line on this. Abram asked the question, how am I going to know that I will gain possession of it? How am I going to know? If this was a military process, I'd know. I'd know how to gain possession of it. But that whole concept of possession was not that of battle and warfare. 
this is a, this is a man-made mindset that says I gotta I gotta destroy the people in front of me in order to obtain what they have, because God promised it to me, so I must destroy my enemy. That's not God's um, uh, process here. Uh, to, to give the word give. the The word give here, I will the land I will give you means to bestow. It doesn't mean, boom, like <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going to run it over for you. Possession means to cause it to become yours. It's not yours now. I'm going to cause it to become yours. It's different than like you know the whole concept of like genocide and destruction and battles. Abram, Abram here doesn't know how he's even gonna know that this has happened. This is this is what's it like and if it's not military he also knows I'm not going to buy all this land. Some people think you know God's going to well not think but but theoretically he could have thought God's going to give me so much money that I'm just going to start purchasing huge plots of real estate. And eventually I'll take over this land. No, he's like how am I going to know? And God's like I'm going to bestow to you land, I'm going to cause it to become yours. This means that there's nothing that you are going to do physically or financially to cause my promises to come true. This is, this, I know, I know, I'm hanging on this a little bit. Bob's like, are we going to move on from this? Yes, I, this is kind of a heavy subject, a heavy concept because it changes the uh, uh, the paradigmic shift. It, it brings a shift in people's mindsets when it comes to who God is and what he was telling Abram at this time. When it comes to the promised land, remember, this is the covenant he's made that will go down all the way through Exodus. This is the this is where it starts. I'm going to cause something that isn't yours to become yours. Abram understands, how am I going to know that happens? Because it's not going to look like I have it. I'm not going to have battled for it. I'm not going to have paid for it. How am I going to know? And the Lord says, good question. Let me tell you how you're going to know. <laughs> Now, we'll, we'll break this down, but basically what he's saying is you're going to know that it's going to happen because I'm going to make it happen. Like, I'm I'm setting a covenant. That's how you know. Because it's a promise I've made. That's how you know. I'm going to take care of all the details. Now, I do know that this messes with the idea of free choice. But I believe in God's sovereignty. He knows all the choices that anybody could ever make. And he understands the ramifications of all those choices. And in all that, God says, it's going to become yours. It will belong to you. Unfortunately, I do think man got involved in this, right? Clearly, we know the stories of the battles that occur in order to overtake the land. And we'll get into that. Oh, sorry, excuse me. We'll get into that uh, next year, more so than this year. 
But but God's plan was to bestow this land. And he's like, this is, I'm going to make this promise to you. So he goes through it. He goes, bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So I kind of think the sun is coming up at this point. I think Abram and God have had a conversation that went through the night, which is easy to do. When you're in God's presence, you don't feel tired. I've been there. I've, I've, you know, I've been in meetings where, where I've been awake for me way past my bedtime, which would be like midnight, one o'clock. My bedtime is early. And, and I've been in those meetings and the presence of God just, it's energizing. It's powerful. And when you're done, there's like, you're like, well, I call it like wired. I've come back from worship nights that, you know, went to 11 o'clock or something. And I've had to come home and sit on the couch and like figure life out because my, my spirit is so energized. So I kind of picture that is what's occurring here. And so the sun's coming up and the Lord's like, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram each one three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these things, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. So these carcasses are laid out. Now, Abram understands what this is. This is another, this is a cultural um, representation of what a covenant means. Now, covenants are built on relationship, and it's built on on a promise that everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and we're going to cut an animal in two and we're going to meet in the middle and we're going to promise each other that if we don't fully engage in giving each other everything that we've agreed to give, then whatever happened to these animals should happen to us. We will be split in two. And the only way that this covenant will end is if someone takes a knife and cuts us in two. Because this covenant is a covenant. It's not a contract where both parties agree to provide in exchange for something that will be provided for them. Most of the time, like we often enter into contracts, like whenever we purchase something, right? I'm going to give you this money. You're going to give me this product. A lot of people, unfortunately, enter marriages like a contract. You're going to, you know, take care take care of the home and, <laughs> sorry, most guys enter in like, you're going to take care of the house and uh, sleep with me and I'm going to go out and get a job and provide for you so that you can take care of the house and sleep with me. So there's just like this contractual exchange. I know I super oversimplified that, but... But that's usually the case sometimes. And, you know, from a female perspective, it might be you're going to, uh, you know, promise me a relational connection. We're going to spend time together. You're going to love me. Uh, and and when you're at work, I will take care of the house. And if that means children, I'll take care of the children. And, and, and then, of course, we'll have sex together and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sorry if your children are listening to this. And I just said the word, and you have to now explain it to your children as to what in the world I was talking about, but that's enough. <laughs> that's enough of that. This is a covenant, a relational covenant, and the reason why they would meet in the middle is they're saying, I'm bringing everything of me, you're bringing everything of you, and we're meeting in the middle. There's an agreement that we're both bringing everything in. Now, covenants sometimes weren't necessarily for everything in possession, but but would, you know, uh, of the two, usually families uh, uh, were involved in covenants. And the men would make, you know, would, would usually 
there's been sort of uh, like this contractual exchange for a while. And then both both parties kind of look at each other and, and say, you know what, if we were in covenant, if we if we brought everything in, then both of us would benefit greatly. And if we're in covenant, that means if one of us kind of falls apart, the other one's all of the other one's possessions becomes a resource for us. And if the other one's under attack, we promise to bring all of our ability to protect it, you know, protect them and protect their family. Like we, we you can come live in our house. You can come, you know, lay, live off of our land. If there's a famine in your land, you can come live on our land. Like covenants were important for families. They were important for businesses. And then, of course, nations would make covenants with other nations. And they would promise protection and provision. And they'd say, all of our nation's resources are yours. All of your nation's resources are ours. And, and usually that had to do with like trade and marketing and, and uh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, products, you know, like you build boats and we build whatever. And so we're going to just be able to exchange these things freely and openly without, without uh, taking advantage of one another, et cetera, et cetera. All right, enough about covenants. So uh, he, he slices them all in two. He arranges them. He knows how to arrange them because he's he's done this sort of thing before. He's seen this sort of thing before. So he sets it all up. He knows what God's doing. And I think God's doing it because, not because God needs a reminder. He's doing it because he wants Abram to have a physical reminder of what he's already promised. God's not going to fall back on his promise. Like, like God's thinking, man, I, I better get into covenant I got to make a covenant with this guy because, uh, you know, I, I need to make sure that I, f I hold up my end of the bargain. No, he's like, I need to show Abram. I need to give him a physical altar, so to speak, a physical memorial to what is going on so that he understands it again, because it's tough. You know, he was feeling exposed. He was feeling unprotected. He was feeling uh, lost because he doesn't have an heir. I need him to have something to look at and say, yeah, that's, I, I remember that day. So it says, uh, the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So he's waiting for whatever happens next. He sliced these things up in the morning and he waits. And of course, you know, the vultures showed up and whatever, ravens, other carni car carnivorous car cadaver eaters, they get in there. He's just chasing the critters away all day. All day. Verse 12, the sun was setting. Abram fell into a deep sleep. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Bum, bum, bum. We don't know what's going to happen. It's dark. It's scary. I tell people often, right, I, I do a lot of... Uh, what do I, uh, dream interpretations. And I tell people a lot of times uh, when they have nightmares that that's like a dream from God with the volume turned up. And often what they've, what they've said to me is that once, once they have that filter over a nightmare, they realize that, that they've had a lot of dreams leading up to it, but they just, they just didn't, you know, necessarily pay attention to them because they were just like nice dreams, like fluffy dreams. And so they didn't think anything of it. But a nightmare is like, whoa, something crazy just happened. I better pay attention. So I think that's what that means. Dreadful darkness came over him. He's like, whoa, this is crazy. So there you go. 
He goes, uh, the Lord said to him, know for certain that 400 years, for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun has set and darkness had fallen, and smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the two between all the pieces, and on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land from Wadi to Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land, the Kezadites, Kezadites, Kadaramites, Hittites, Pesacites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites. Yeah, you get the picture. Anyways, so let's walk this through. What is he saying? Well, I think the first thing I know the I know he goes into the 400 years of slavery in Egypt, which is basically the book of Exodus, which we'll get to next year, but. I think what he's really saying is in verse 15, he's like, listen, you are going to die in peace and be buried at a good old age. Like, remember where this all started. This all started with Abram feeling very unsettled and unprotected. And God's like, you're going to be fine. Nimrod's not coming after you. That alliance of kings, they're not coming after you. They've made other choices. Like, it, they're, you're going to be fine. I'm keeping an eye on them. Trust me, they've got other fish to fly, fry. But he says, your descendants, your descendants are, are going to be, uh, they're going to end up being enslaved in a country that's not this one. It's not their own. And they're going to be mistreated there. Verse 14, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possession. So that idea of... Uh, of serving. This is uh, this is important to break down because w- one of the ways you can translate that is that they're compelled to serve. That they they gave up their freedom. In other words, they allowed themselves to be controlled, maybe through fear, maybe through threat of of loss of possessions, maybe through a desire to gain more possessions, they they were compelled to serve as slaves. I, I think that that's an important opportunity there for translation and application. They allowed control. They allowed fear. They allowed the possession, uh, uh, oppression to move over them from a place of favor where they had started in Egypt, right? Now, briefly, they're moved down there by Joseph. They're given possession of the land. And because of the way Joseph was administrating Egypt during during the worldwide famine, the land that they took possession of, no one was living in at the time. And it became the land of livestock, Right, it was a land of fishing. It became a land of livestock, and all it says all of Pharaoh's uh, livestock were given to them. In other words, they took possession of one of the greatest financial streams 
of Egypt. Once the famine was over, livestock was, they, they were, they were non-existent. If you remember, and well, again, if you can remember the story, the first year, uh, everybody paid for the, for the grain that Joseph had stored up. They paid for it in cash. The next year, it says they paid in livestock. So basically, all the livestock of the, of the world had been brought in. Now, I know it's not like literally every single one, but generally speaking, once the famine was over and people slowly started to gain back their lives, they were going to all come back to Egypt to try and purchase strong, uh, well, uh, well-developed, genetic, uh, genetically developed um, horses and cows and sheep and goats. And guess who was in control of all that? The Israelites. They oversaw all of that. So they moved from this place of favor, and maybe within a couple hundred years, they were they were a threat both both physically and financially. Their numbers multiplied. There was a lot of them in the land. They had spread throughout the land. They probably had livestock uh, uh, trading posts all over the land. And then I think probably politically regulations came in. Uh, mandates came down the, the line. Um, Pharaoh made a decision to do this or do that. And, and rather, than, rather than be uncomfortable, rather than pack everything up and go back to the land that God had given them, they stayed and they allowed themselves to be, um, they allowed themselves to be compelled, or they were compelled. They allowed themselves to be overrun by fear and oppression and eventually got to a place where they were enslaved. And then they were, then they were abused. And I think they were abused because for years, the, the nation of Israel believed that this group of people who didn't belong to them, that weren't a part of their heritage, who were very protective of their ancestry and didn't, you know, didn't want intermarrying to go on. That that nation that you know, I think, built up a lot of racism against them, and vice versa. And so they had an opportunity to basically control and and enslave them, and they did. Now, for how long is that going to last? It says right here. It says. Uh, in the fourth generation, verse 16, your, gen, your descendants will come back for the sin of the Amorites, which is really the whole area of Canaan, which is where they were, where Abram was currently living, has not reached its full measure. What does that mean? It means God's looking at the choices of the Canaanites, and he's like, this will end in death, because sin always does. It just hasn't reached there yet. So it's going to take... 400 years for that to for the, for that to figure out but when it does Canaanites will it's going to happen like I don't I don't I'm not going to tell you how it's going to happen I'm just telling you why it's going to happen because of their decisions what they've decided to enter into is going to land them in death the worship of idols the selfishness the arrogance the pride the fear the oppression the religious mindset the the arrogance, the selfishness, all of that's going to come back to bring about death because that's what sin always does. 
He's not, he's not predicting it saying, I'm going to cause this to happen. He's predicting it because this is what happens when you enter into that mindset. So when all of that happens, your ancestors are going to come back and all this land will belong to them. Once again, once again, it is not God saying you're going to, uh, they're going to come back and create war against those, you know, all the, all these lists of uh, people that live in the, in the land, right? And there's eight of them or nine of them in the verses 19 through 21. He's like, I'm not going to put you at war with these people. You're just going to get possession of their land. You're going to, I'm going to cause it to become yours. I'm going to bestow it upon you basically because they're not going to be around anymore. They're going to self-destruct because of the way they're headed. This is the way it happens. Not because I'm making it happen, but that's what sin does. It allows, it causes you to self-destruct. And I'm just letting you know, Abram, you're going to be fine. You're going to die at peace. You're going to die at a ripe old age. And just a reminder, an actual offspring of yours from your blood is going to take possession of all that you own. I'm taking care of it. So if you've entered into a choice and you feel unsettled and you feel disconnected from God and you're thinking, wait a minute, you know, I entered into this with great excitement and focus and now I'm sitting back here going, holy crap, what did I do? This is not cool. I'm like in serious trouble. I could lose everything. God, where are you? Trust me, God's right there. And he says, don't be afraid. I am your shield. I am your great reward. Now that's a good word, everyone. Have a great day. I'll see you next week on The Epic Narrative. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. Well, guess what time it is. It is time for Bob Thoughts on The Epic Narrative. Now, I am currently in Utah. Actually, at the time of this recording, uh, when the time you hear it, which will be Monday, I'll be in Colorado. But currently, I'm in Utah, and we've been we've been traveling every day, almost. Okay, maybe not every day. There were several days we didn't travel, but basically, we're up on this what's called the High Plain Desert, and then we would travel to the south or to the north to the east. Trust me, there's so many gorgeous things out here. It's insane. It's like walking on another planet day after day after day. It's bizarre. Anyways, we go into these desert areas, like like the desert that you would think of in your head. The high plain deserts where we are where our house is currently. Very green, very lush, but the land goes on forever. And it's the same in the main deserts. And every time I I I drive these things, it's it's uh, I want to take pictures because it's like massive it's massive amounts of land and and nothing's on them and like you'll see these what's called these buttes right these huge massive rocks that stick up in the middle of nowhere and and literally i clocked it once we saw this butte for almost 30 miles before we got to it because we were just traveling in a straight line because that's what these says. Maybe a little curve. Okay, sorry. little exaggeration. 30 miles. I could see this thing. It was insane. It was so big. And then we just drive by it. And there it is. It's just sitting there in the middle of the freaking desert. 
It was nuts. It's nuts. The, the land out here is nuts. Beautiful nuts and beyond words in, in the majesty. It's just like it's powerful to sit in these canyons. Powerful. Anyways, enough about me. On with the uh, epic narrative. So when 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 I listened to it this week uh, and I heard um, Abram, you know, basically say to the Lord, I feel exposed. Like I, I have no way to protect myself. I thought I, I kind of get it now even more because he's sitting on a plane. He's sitting on a desert plane. And and you can see for miles, but there's nowhere to go for miles. I, I drive down these roads and I think of so many Western movies that I watched as a child. And I, and I remember thinking, oh man, like, like they, they make it so dramatic. All they did was, you know, walk across this big flat area to go to the mountains. It's like, like I, I drive for hours across that place. I drive at 75, 80 miles an hour and it takes me hours to get across it. On a horse, it would take you days. And you're, you're completely exposed the whole time. There is no shade. There is no, you, if, oh my gosh. So when I, when I heard it again this week, I thought, yeah, I get it. I get it way more now because of uh, where we currently are. Now, uh, with that being said, I wanted to, I, I, I think I probably, in my desire to be clear, I think I probably talked too much about the importance of the, of the concept that Abram heard the Lord say, I'm going to give you this land. And he did not have an, an that the language the Lord used did not create in Abram any concept of war or purchase in order to obtain the land. He was so mystified by how God was going to give it to him that he said, how am I going to know I have it? Like, he literally didn't know. How am I going to know that the land is mine? And the Lord's basic answer was, your descendants are going to be so great, you're going to, in essence, inhabit the land. He didn't talk about it from a point of military destruction, which by the time we get to next season, when we talk about Exodus, that's exactly what Joshua believed it to be, a military uh, approach. But I, I, can, I can guarantee you, because I'm already, I'm already writing those episodes <laughs> currently. Well, okay, I'm not there. I'm, anyways, I'm writing episodes for, for Exodus. And... The language allows uh, to, allows God to be consistent in this. He is not looking for a military campaign in order to take over the land. And Abram understands that. But what he doesn't know is how is he going to know? Like, literally, how am I going to know? And he's like, you're going to have that many descendants. And Abram's point is, I don't have a descendant. I don't even have one. How are, we, how are you going to give me this land if I don't even have one? And God does the whole ceremony. Abram sits there all day waiting for the Lord to show up. And he says, listen, Abram, 
I'm going to take care of, I'm going to literally take care of every detail. You're not going to have to do anything in this covenant in order for it to take place. I am going to take care of every detail. So be at peace. It will happen. Now, you may listen to that and say, Bob, why did you, you literally, you, you stretched out a 48, nine minute episode and you just condensed it into three. I know it comes with time. I have, you know, it's a matter of processing, but that's what it is in a nutshell. God's promise of the land to Abram, Abram immediately understood it to mean he wasn't going to have to go to war to get it, and he wasn't going to have to start making massive real estate purchases in order to obtain it. It was all going to be his, and it was going to be a cultural, populational thing. His descendants were going to spread out throughout the land and bring a change to the world. And that was that's a, <laughs> that's the best way for me to put it. It's the simplest way for me to put it, and I hope... I hope you stick with me on this. I know for some, this is this is that this is a very radical concept because because we grew up hearing that God was going to, you know, in essence, uh, He promised the land to Abram, and the plan was absolute genocide of entire nations and tribes, every man, woman, and child, and that was God's plan. And I want you to know from the start, that wasn't God's plan. Now, if you want to figure out with me all the nuances and details of the language of the book of Exodus, come with me next season. Like I said, I've just started writing these things, and and I know, I know, there's a lot of things when you read it in the English, if you take my view of how good God is, you look at the language and you say, well, God, you have a serious problem. But every time I've worked through the, 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 the words so far, and I'm on episode 26 or 27 of next season, every time it turns out God doesn't have a problem, man has had the problem. We want, an inc- we want a dualistic God. And if you don't know what that is, go to my Bob Thoughts page. Uh, I have, I don't know, I, I know I have at least one, one episode on dualism that God is both good and evil. This dualistic mindset, God is not dualism. He is. He doesn't have to be good and bad. And, and the only way you experience a good is if God is bad. Go to my Bob Thoughts, I express it more. God is not dualistic. He is all good. He is all good. He is all good. All the time, all through time. Have yourself a fabulous day, everyone. Thanks so much for coming by. everyone thanks for listening if you like what you heard you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use you can also reach out to bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com see you next week guys